Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Si un jour tu m'emmènes à la plage, j'aimerais t'en plonger dans les fers. Je te promets que je resterai sage, mais tu ne comprends pas que je rêve de ça. Welcome to the House of Strauss. I am delighted to introduce you all. I mean, you might have heard of the man. He has sold millions of books, literally. Ashley Vance, man. Uh, it's uh, it's great to have you here. Um, and it, I'm very happy that you were late. I'm very happy you screwed up the time. And the reason I'm happy for it is this. You, you are perhaps the most accomplished author who has ever been on here. You've got this oh. new book coming out that just hit the bestsellers list. And... I have not read either book, and I feel ashamed. So <laughs> it's better that way, man. I've spent I spent the last ten days shilling myself, you know, answering the same same questions over and over again. I was happy to uh, to talk to somebody who thinks a little different and was coming at this anyway from a, a different way to begin with. I, I was listening to your interviews for the book, and um, it, it is rather. It's rather fascinating. I'm trying to the the battle for. I, I don't know the title off the top of my head. There's a big subhead. I know it's about billionaires I can, privatizing space. Give me the title I can, of the subhead. I can, this I is can, going great. This is going I can, great. I can plug this puppy, man. Uh, when <laughs> the it. heavens went on sale, the yes. misfits and geniuses racing to put space within reach. Yes, I don't feel ashamed for having not read this because it, it is coming out now and I didn't get a galley and it is one of these things though where listening to interviews um you don't choose boring topics man uh this is it, it, I I had the distinct impression I wonder if you're how, if you're going through this on a few of your interviews where the person interviewing you either didn't know until the interview or didn't know until reading the book how massive the implications are of what's happening yeah, there's part of that. Well, first of all, it's always nice when they discover that I'm a man instead of a woman somewhere <laughs> really in the uh, interview process. That usually lets me know where the the research level is. Um, yeah, you know, I had I, I had sort of by nature of this book and just who I've been hanging out with for the last five years while I was working on this. You know, there was a there's a pretty big space kind of crowd, um, a bunch of podcasts and things I've been on. So those, those people are pretty clued in the, the mainstream audience. Once I drop a couple numbers of what has happened right above our heads over the last few years, their, their eyes usually kind of widen and, um, and, and they're surprised. I totally understand the book just came out. I should have got you a galley because, wow. you know, there's a, there was some stuff I, I kind of wanted to get into with you that I think nobody else will even notice, which is everyone's oh. focused on this as like a, they think it's like a quasi business book or like a space book, which, which it is in parts, but you know, it's, it's, uh, I wrote this as kind of like this. I went to four continents. I spent five years doing this. And then I tried some really weird things in the book, which I, I want to, if you do get around to reading, I want to, I want to see what you think. I, I I think I tried some kind of weird, vaguely new kind of nonfiction in parts of this. And, and one, one reviewer picked up on it, but I've been kind of surprised mm. that um, people haven't noticed. Okay. I want to get in 
to all of that. And my <laughs> thought process with you was this, um, to give full transparency to the listener. Uh, you reached out to me about something I had written, and then I went, oh my God, this is the guy who wrote that huge Elon Musk book that sold millions of copies. And then I thought, I definitely want to get him on the podcast. And then I started thinking, well, I want to read his entirety of works before I do that. But then I thought, why deprive myself of a conversation now? <laughs> we can, I can do that. And I, I would assume you'd be amenable to returning when I've done my, when I've done my proper research and, and we can have that conversation. Um, and I want to, I'm so curious what aspects you thought would be appropriate to discuss here. I can tell you what jumped out at me in hearing your interviews. I listened yeah. to your interview on the, the realignment podcast and um, you mentioned something that's almost taken for granted, so I hadn't really thought about it, which is that satellite technology and space was just the province of nations. And so we didn't really know what was going on a lot of the time up there or even down here from a certain vantage because countries would disagree about it. You know, Did, did a missile strike somewhere in Kashmir? Uh, India says one thing, Pakistan says the other thing. But now that space is being privatized, and there are all kinds of satellites up there. Now there's a bit of an information free-for-all, and nations can't control what information is out there as much. And that is just one, I think, of many implications of this book and this this race to privatize space that you've written about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to level set people a little bit, this is, this is not a book about space tourism or colonies on Mars. It's about exactly what you talked about, which is stuff that's actually happening now, and that's filling low Earth orbit, the, this part of space that's kind of right above us, with, with thousands upon thousands of satellites. Um, this is this is well underway. I don't think most people have been paying attention. And, and you know, to your point, um, there's an argument that I make pretty briefly in the book, which is actually stealing. I, I do footnote it, um, but it's stealing from <clears throat> this guy named Alexander McDonald. He's an economist for NASA. And and he points out, you know, like in the 1910s and 1920s, everyone's forgotten this, but there were actually like rocket startups, more or less. There, there was people in the United States and Russia and Germany who got quite good at, at liquid rockets, which is still like what we use today. And, and, you know, they were privately funded. They were kind of heading that direction. And then you get world war one and then world war two really set things off on this nation state sort of course where it was between Russia and the United States. It was this point of national pride. Nobody could mess up. We were dealing with humans. So, so the rockets had to be kind of big. They had to be perfect. You, you, you just couldn't, there wasn't much room for experimentation because once we got this dialed in, it, it was like too embarrassing if something fails and you're in this race. And, yeah. and so anyway, it became this province of like anyone who wanted to do something in space had to have thousands of people. You had to have billions of dollars and, and, you know, you know, things actually got sort of like stuck after that. I mean, the rockets did not mm. change much at all. The satellites um, barely improved. They certainly were not using like modern electronics or anything. But then, you know, the last 15 years, this has all changed pretty dramatically. And then the last five years, it's gone gone exponential. And, and you have, it's not like anybody can make a rocket or a satellite, but, but almost, you know, and, yeah. and uh, it's just a totally new era. Yeah. And the possibilities, I think, 
are hard to fathom. And it's not a space that people of my generation or your generation grew up thinking could be this. And it seems like that is what's going to happen. Um, and the, even the business aspect is a little bit confusing to me. Obviously, it's confusing to, be, to me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were saying that there needs to be all this infrastructure. So it's not all just uh, eggheads in a room like the photographs of Houston with the moon landing. There are welders, there are construction workers, and all of that makes sense. But as far as how you economically appropriate getting farther and farther away from the planet. That's not something that's intuitive to me, having not read the book yet. No, well, that part's not intuitive to me at all. I mean, honestly, I I just do not look at at like deep space exploration or should we have a colony on Mars? I am so focused on we are building what I call like a computing shell around the planet mm-hmm. Earth. This is all based on all the money. is. There's hardly any money in rockets. All the money is in satellites. It's in data. It's in communications. And, and this is the part I'm into. And this um, is real. We are filling the skies with all these satellites. And, and, you know, this is stuff like Starlink, people, SpaceX's space internet. Lots of people use that already. Um so there is money there. My, you know, the prologue to my book is called A Shared Hallucination. And um, what I argue is, is that we're in this moment in time when when commercial space is real, but we're about to find out if there's like any actual profitable business there. Mm. And the shared hallucination is just sort of like when when I was hanging out with these people for all these years, you know, and like the third scotch is poured and everybody looks at each other, they're kind of like, yeah, we don't know if any of this shit is going to work either, you know? And and but it's like it's just kind of like we're going to find out. And and for it's weird because we've gone from governments to billionaires to now venture capitalists in this. And sometimes I look at the VCs putting money in, and again, this this shared hallucination thing I think is just like. Hey, a rocket is cool and sexy. I want, I want one too. Whether this, I'm not sure this makes sense, hey, but I want one. <laughs> maybe there's, maybe there's oil on Jupiter. I don't know. You don't know either. We haven't really tested it out. It could yeah. be down there. It's potential. And then, I mean, there is something funny to just the massive expenditures on space because I remember growing up, there was always an explanation of, hey, NASA spent a lot of money. And it's hard to necessarily justify a lot of the exploration, but we come up with so many useful technologies in the process of doing it. There is that rationalization of maybe the technological discoveries are just the friends we made along the way or whatever phrase you want to apply to (laughs) whatever phrase you want to apply to the idea that doing this wasn't inherently profitable, but it encourages so much innovation that somehow, some way, we're going to find profit that I did while knowing absolutely nothing about the subject material. It seemed rather convenient and a little bit dubious to me, the skeptic. Well, you get NASA ice cream. I mean, we all <laughs> ate that. That was great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you get uh, there is stuff, obviously, like like GPS, which is kind of like part NASA, part, you know, Department of Defense, where this ends up becoming this world changing technology in the in the book, though, I got to confess, I mean, the book is fairly anti NASA and uh, sort of the way things had 
progress that way. There's a guy in the book that I think would be near and dear to someone like you's heart is, is this dude, mm. Pete, Pete Warden. He was, uh, he's got like a PhD in astrophysics. He's probably about 65 or 70 now. Um, he was, he was one of the main guys who did the star Wars missile defense shield during the Reagan era. He did a lot of black ops stuff after nine 11, he ran like the office of misinformation, um, mm. to sort of w- win over the, hearts and minds of people in the Middle East as we were going in to uh, invade them. And he ends up getting pushed over to this Silicon Valley's NASA center, NASA Ames. And and Pete, to his credit, he was always this iconoclastic guy, whether he was in, in the military or some part of the government, who was always trying to push for things to be kind of faster, cheaper, better to fight the bureaucracy. And um, he ends up at NASA Ames and they did things like, you know, he's this is kind of early 2000s, like 2005-ish. He's like, I think we could build a... He brought in all these 20-somethings who he's like, come help me fix NASA. And and they would do stuff like, you know, I don't think a lunar lander has to cost a billion dollars. I think we can make one for, mm-hmm. for 20 million. And they would start this and like this dude, Richard Shelby, a senator from Alabama, he caught wind of it and he's like... Shut mm. it down. We don't want to find out <laughs> if we can make a lunar lander for $20 million. Like Lockheed and Boeing are not going to be happy about that. And then so he he would like actually take these people at NASA and then he would hide them from like closet to closet to let them keep working. And NASA, NASA, same as as the senator, they did not want to find out if you could make wow. any of this stuff cheaper because it was it would be real bad for everybody. So um, but then you know, half the companies in my book come out of this this NASA center in the end. Wow. Um but this I, this I, is sort of the yeah. environment that it's in, you know, like part of NASA wants yeah. commercial space, but a huge part of it is like, let's just keep things the way they are. I, I eventually I want to get into your intense interest in ambition. In innovation, I think it's something that we. I think it's something that we share. I, I'm interested in the um, the big ego that makes things happen and has to be an imperfect figure for that to happen. He's not going to be coming with, and I say he because it's usually a he. He's not going to be coming with a bunch of qualities that are are perfect in, in many instances, and I'm I'm drawn to it. But I I want to get into your background a bit. You on the email thread, uh, you used the the phrase lads. Or the word lads, <laughs> which made my producer Anthony Mays quite intrigued as to what accent we would be privy to. I had heard your interviews and I told him he was about to be disappointed. Uh, it wasn't going to be anything exotic or from the UK. But what is your background and how did you come to be such a comprehensive chronicler of Silicon Valley ambition? So I was born in South Africa and I used to have a very posh um little British South African accent and wow. my my mom is Australian so so these and I, I I spent a lot of time in Australia as a kid so yeah some of these uh, these little verbal tics have have hung out with me um, but uh mm-hmm. you know I was a philosophy major at school and uh, had to find a job after that <laughs> and and uh, had always like enjoyed Loved writing. I thought I would be like yeah. the great American novelist. I knew nothing about tech at all. I was, was basically like a, a Luddite. Um, but I had to find a job and I wanted to live in San Francisco. This is kind of like dot-com boom era when I was graduating and started at like a tech newswire, basically. But, you know, the job description was like, need 
low paid person to travel world and cover technology. I was like, that's I'll do that for a while. <laughs> and probably like you did, I imagine, man, you just, you get like that sort of adrenaline buzz when you get a scoop and when you see your name in print and, and I was like, I'll do this for a while. And so, yeah, I kind of worked my way up, you know, and got, so what I discovered was I just felt so stupid talking to these engineers if I didn't know anything. So I just started reading textbook. I covered really geeky stuff like semiconductors, like data center, storage systems, networking equipment, and and just didn't want to be stupid when I did the interviews. And I found like the engineers gave you way better scoops than the executives who were always just, you know, carrying the party line. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do nerd speak. So I read textbooks. I learned how to use mm. like Unix operating systems, learned how a semiconductor works. And that just kind of got me sucked in more and more because then it became very interesting. And um, then I kind of just worked my way up, man. I ended up going from trade publications to the New York Times and The Economist and all that. I mean, that phrase, that's that's a really good mentality of, I just don't want to look stupid while I'm doing it. And it's actually a phrase I've often found myself saying when I'm out of my depth or I'm in a world that I just know nothing about. It's, hey, can you help me out? I, I am going to talk about this. Can you help me not look stupid when I talk about this? Um, and that that seems to open people up because there's there's kind of a humility and a diligence and an invitation to take pity uh on on you <laughs> that that tends to if anybody's looking for a reporting trick that is a phrase that that does wonders yeah i think like the worst thing you can do as a reporter even on like stuff i know now you know <clears throat> i go in just be like explain this to me like i know nothing because you just do yourself a huge disservice if you go in acting like you know stuff because you you, you you cut yourself off of all these questions. And it turns out usually you, you don't know it as well as you think you do anyway. Um, so, no, I, I do the same thing. I always think playing dumb is, is the way to go. I think that's a little bit of a sub-theme in the movie Margin Call, uh, which depicts a Goldman Sachs-esque fictional company during the 2008 financial crisis. And people are trying to look for an explanation of what the hell just happened by some young data scientist type. And the farther you get up the chain in that movie, the more the senior figure is exaggerating his stupidity and how it needs to be explained. Uh, explain it to me like I'm a golden retriever, whatever. Um, I that and, scene. Yeah. With Jeremy Irons. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's a little bit of a, a lesson in that, which is that to collect as much information as possible, you have to not act like you know everything. It's tough, though, because you also want credibility. You want to seem like it's hard. If I were to have actually read your two best-selling books, and I think there are only two, there could be more that I'm unaware of. I'm aware of the two. I've got a, um, a third book. It's quite different, though. It's like a historical guidebook to Silicon Valley. So it's, it's is quite it different. All, is it also a bestseller? Are you three for three? It is certainly not. I, uh, I think I got paid a $5,000 advance for that, which I have yet to earn earn out on like 20 years later. Oh, I think that was uh, some some seed money well spent or whatever <laughs> they say in the in the VC world. But no, if I were to have read those two books, I would have this um, – it's not a conundrum, but it would be difficult because I would want to convey to you that I had done the homework and it would be really tempting to inject that in the places where it doesn't 
belong. And I've certainly done that in conversations where I'm so eager, I'm so eager to show that I've that I've done my homework and I understand what they're saying, that I'm almost talking over them to go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I recognize that. Yes, yes, just like that. Da, 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 da. And it's very it's difficult. It's difficult to know. And I'm sure you've been confronted with that when you're talking to an engineer and you've studied your textbooks of when do I when do I reveal that I know a little something? Yeah, I think with the engineers, I just wanted to be able to like swap the lingo when called upon just to make it clear that I was not a total moron. Um, but I really do. I do it. It's interesting. You raise such a good point. I mean, sometimes I go in to meet someone, the subject, and and you want to do a good job. So like you said, you try to read everything that's available on the internet just so you're not sort of repeating ground that's already been covered. You're trying to find something new. Um, and then sometimes it's like rewarding to go in with just a total blank slate and and be like, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna do this my way and and um and and probably have kind of a different experience than some other reporters had. I mostly just wanted to when the stuff was so geeky that I really just wanted to, when they said things to have some sort of knowledge of what they were trying to communicate yeah. to me. And then, the, you know, the, I definitely would not jump in at the beginning being like, I'm a, you know, I know everything and let me show off. It was more just to, to have the, the line of communication be open and the engineers, man, if you show them, a little bit of interest, you know, next thing you know, you're getting like confidential slide decks and, and all kinds of things. Like once, if they sense that you're kind of vaguely one of them, um, they are, they're sort of, they're the kind of people that like to share information as opposed to keep it hidden away. And so you really do yourself a lot of favors. Hmm. Um, that's, it's interesting because I, it's like I would view people like that who weren't verbally inclined as almost a challenge, but it makes sense that they would want to share aspects of their world that they think about all the time. Um, you famously wore down the will of one Elon Musk, got him <laughs> to agree to do your book. This was a long process, a protracted process. Uh, your book starts out with the scene of your meeting with him at a seafood restaurant. And I, I mean, I've read that much and I loved the scene of it. And there is a little bit of the narrator's monologue in there, but there had to be more to it than that. I'm wondering, did you approach it with a strategy of how you talk to this guy, this very strange human being um, in trying to get what you want? Yeah. I mean, I don't know the, the, Kind of a story that stretches over a couple of years, but you know, basically, I I'm a my day job is as a feature writer for Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, and I had done, I did a big cover story on Elon around like 2011 or 2012, and and we'd gotten along okay, you know, en enough during that whole process, and I'd found him quite fascinating, and the, the I really was kind of blown away by the factories at SpaceX and Tesla. So, you know, I, I decided I, this is probably something I want to do as a book. And one of those things where you put out a feeler first, you're like, Hey, Elon, how would you feel about me doing a book? You know? And, and he, he wrote back saying, that's fine, but I don't want to do it now. Other people have asked before I'd feel bad if I said yes to you. I was like, okay. 
And I went to HarperCollins and I pitched the book and, and oh I, told, I told him, I was like, look, I don't have guaranteed access, but I, I know I could do this book. But in the back of my head, I was like, I'm going to, this is going to seal the deal. I'm going to get access, you know? And, mm. and so I sold the book <clears throat> and then I went to Elon. I said, well, now I've sold the book, you know? And, and he said, okay, come to my, come to the office. Let's talk about it. So I went to Tesla on a Saturday. We had like an hour long meeting. I was like, it went pretty well. I'm like, I got him. This is it, baby. I've done it, you know? And then I think I like pulled my car into the driveway and walked inside. Just so right after the meeting, I got this note on my phone and he says, I, I don't think I've ever told a story before like this either. He's like, I'm I'm not going to do your book. It was nice meeting you. We had a good chat. I'm not going to do your book. Not only that, I'm going to do my own book, which I've just <laughs> sold. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. He's like, this is a good idea. I'm, I'm going to do my own book. And and he had like some super agent at WME, you know, who's going to blow me out of the universe. Um, so I went on this long run after that. I remember I was on Stevens Creek Trail out here in the Bay Area. I, I don't run that much, but this was like a seven or eight miler. That was a lot for me. And it was just the whole time, like, can I do this if he doesn't? Mm -hmm. Like, what have I done? I've just sold his book. This not, it was, I also didn't know it was like, not only was he not going to do interviews, but now he's doing his own book. So is he going to actively tell people not to talk to me? Right. Because then yeah. it gets, it gets a lot harder. And, uh, and I didn't know, and I didn't really want to ask him because that would like give him permission to be like, yes, no, that's a good idea. I am going to do that. Um, so I went on this long run and then I just decided to do it. And so I spent two years I interviewed about 300 people, you know, half those people would call back to him and be like, Hey, should I talk to this guy? And he didn't tell them no. So I sort of was like, Oh, okay. This is going all right. In the background of all this, I had at what there were, he was hiring ghostwriters to do his book. And I would catch wind of this. And at one point, like somebody I knew was hired as wow. his ghostwriter to like beat me to publication. Um, so it was all kind of crazy. And then whatever, all that stuff fell through. Two years in, I had a landline at home back then, and like Elon Musk pops up on the landline, and he's like, "Okay, you've worn me down. I'll." Uh, I was ready. I was ready to start writing the book, um, mm. and he's like, "Okay, I'll do interviews. We'll, we'll, and then, and then we had this dinner where he wanted to hash out the terms. But it, you know, it ended up being this amazing thing for me." Because as you know, there's kind of like access journalism and there's not, right? And they each come with their pros and cons. In this particular case, I had like reported a whole book with no access. And then suddenly I got the access at the end. Um, so it's kind of the best of both worlds for me. Yeah, it's, I think, an incredible story to even to even get to the story. And it's something that people deal with in my industry. Uh, it happens a lot that there's a famous basketball player and the reporter who knows him best will say, hey, let me write the book about you. And that triggers the idea of, well, I want to write my own book. But your own book is not going to be as interesting as what somebody with some distance and the bandwidth, perhaps more importantly, is going to uncover. There aren't many good autobiographical works, at least in sports. I mean, maybe Elon could pull it off because the guy has gone to space and everything else. But – um, I can think of Andre Agassi's book, which was with a ghostwriter, and there are a few yeah. others that that kind of worked. I think Andre Godala had a bestseller on the Warriors, um, and he chose a good ghostwriter out of the New Yorker. But 
the whole I'm going to write my own book, usually it just thwarts the person who would have written the book who obviously has the passion because they showed up for the job. Um, so yeah, I would say that was fortuitous probably, uh, for, for, for both of you. Yeah. I mean, it is such a weird situation, you know, cause I've had these other similar things. I've had people ask me to ghostwrite stuff. I've had people where you're kind of along the line of maybe doing a book, you know, I mean, Elon is crazy. He's a huge handful. He's not always the most pleasant guy to deal with on this particular thing. I give him credit because, I've had these conversations with other people and they're not willing to do what he did, which is both give me access and realize he's not going to get to see anything that I am going to write, you know, which he did, he did try, but very quickly he's like, okay, fine, just do your thing. And, um, you know, most of these execs are these kind of whatever rich or famous people. Their first question is always, you know, of course I get to see it. Right. And, and make, uh, feedback and everything and you're like yeah. no that's not how this works so you try to explain exactly what you just said like look if you want this to be good and you want someone who knows what they're doing they're never gonna agree to that or they shouldn't and uh and but this is all this stuff like the world of journalism and these these kind of these rules are so foreign to them that it's hard to explain this sometimes yeah it's hard to explain to somebody you don't know what's interesting about you how yeah. could you? You're around you all the time and everybody around you acts like everything you say is interesting. So you are fundamentally the least qualified person. I mean, maybe if you had the sort of self-awareness of a David Sedaris, perhaps you could pull it off. There are occasional good memoir writers, but no, it doesn't It doesn't work. I saw that with the Players' Tribune where athletes and oh, representatives, yeah. they tried to get together to – come up with, we're going to cut the media out. The media, they're bad. They embarrass us. And it's not like anything they were saying about the media was necessarily untrue, but they ran into this problem, which is that people don't tend to know what's interesting about themselves, especially yeah. if they're not professional writers. It's like a white paper. I, the Players' yeah. Tribune stuff was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, but you know, you could see how, I mean, like with Elon, he was just so, yeah, this was the first time in his life he he didn't have control of something. And like, as the book was coming out, even though he knew very explicitly we had made this deal, you know, it started like a month out. He's like, when do I get to see it? I was like, no, 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 no. We were already- We've talked about this. You don't, you know, I mean, I do fact checking, but I'm not sending like huge chunks. I'm like checking facts, sometimes maybe some paragraphs on something technical or has a lot of dates. Um, you know, we'd already been through that part. He's like, when do I, when do I seeing this whole thing? And, and, and then as we got closer and closer, like it was, it was like every night, you know, the phone call is coming. I, it was surreal. I was like, we've already had this conversation. I don't understand. man. And, uh, and, and that, yeah, it's such a, you know, I, and I could just tell, I was like, oh, this is the first time he is not, this must be so uncomfortable for him. This is the first time he hasn't controlled some situation in a very, very, very long time. It must, it must be like horrifying. Did, did he feel, I'm trying to even remember what it was like when you published your book. Did he feel like a figure of controversy back then? Uh, you know, he had been personally through so many, not like now, I mean, but he it's so funny, man. People forget. I mean, there's like generations of, of Elon, <laughs> you know, what he, 
for a while there at the very beginning, he was like the PayPal millionaire. It's like, oh, here's another tech rich guy. And then and then he poured all the money into SpaceX and Tesla. And the companies did so bad for so long, um, about a decade, that he really was like, everyone's like, oh, we're so tired of like hearing about the rocket electric car guy that nothing ever comes out, you know? And and I remember when I went to pitch my cover story at Business Week, they're like, oh God, not another like Elon story, you know? And I was like, no, no, no. But like, everything's working now. They just got to the space station mm-hmm. and the Model S has come out. It's, I was like, this is kind of the moment to do it. Like everything's kind of clicked. And then back then he was, he was this symbol of the left and he was, he started to be seen then as like, possibly the next kind of Steve Jobs, this this sort of budding, iconic figure in the Valley. I think the rest of the world, when I pitched this book to the publishers in New York, hardly anybody really bid on it. They told me nobody knew who Elon Musk was. They all asked me like, but what is he accomplished i was like i don't know he sent like a capsule to the international space station like what what have you what did you do this week you know (laughs) and uh and it was pretty crazy the simpsons in the pro like right after i'd sold the book even when my my own publisher was was like i don't think this is going to sell that much nobody knows who he is uh like the simpsons did an entire elon musk episode you know and i was like i think people do maybe know who this guy is and then um you know, but he was he was a simpler sort of dude to understand back then, kind of like like possibly Silicon Valley hero slash kind of left leaning, you know, um, clean energy fighter um, who yeah. dreams of the stars. Yeah, we're we're obviously in a different place now. <laughs> we are we are, but in a way that we aren't. I was thinking about it that he's got this burning will to transcend and to be limitless. And even though it's hard to connect that to the speech in theory because one's very physical and the other's very abstract, I'm watching him – I think it was with CNBC. He was being grilled on some of his recent tweets. I guess there was some shareholders meeting or some such with Tesla, and that's an occasion to do this. And he's being asked about what he said about George Soros being Magneto and – uh, something in regards to a shooting and whether it really was white supremacist and why he why he doubts it, and he's being grilled on why he would why he would say these things. Um, it, it's almost like the interviewer cannot possibly fathom a person like this who would say these things when they've got all these concerns that could be jeopardized by every single utterance. And I think, from the perspective of Musk, to paraphrase it, it's just. I think there's this, I want to be able to say whatever I want to say, just like I want to be able to go wherever I want to go. And what's funny about it is that it seems as though going to space is easier. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be articulate on this because I just have so many freaking thoughts on, 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 on Elon and the way the world here to hear all of them perceives him right now. Um, Real quick on the space thing. I mean, it is hilarious to me that like, SpaceX is the most stable <laughs> and successful part of his life because it should be, you know, it's the riskiest, least likely thing to succeed. And it's it's just the one that's like running laps around the entire world and is is like pretty much just this well-oiled machine. Um, as far as Elon, you know, oh God. So it, it, I find like, okay, first of all, there's, there's sort of Twitter Elon. And then if you hang out with Elon in person, 
that is not Twitter Elon. He's actually like pretty level-headed and and uh quite like fun to talk to and interesting and and anyway he's just like not sitting there trolling everybody all the time while you're talking to him why he's kind of you know decided to be be troll elon so much i don't know but i also find i just find the world's hysterical reaction i find him sort of hysterical online and then i find the reaction to him to be um hysterical not not in the funny sense of the word um yeah. the, you know people are have, i should think they've all lost their minds i mean it's like this is like he's like a religious figure and this binary proposition you either have to be yeah. like like he is my savior or he is the antichrist you know and i'm just yeah. like this this is not that complicated guys it's like it's like <clears throat> if you look at people who have accomplished things he's got a pretty good track record what did you do your last 20 years i mean give the guy some credit for like changing the car industry in space and and some other things um and then whatever this is like a dude who's just chosen i think very entertainingly for the rest of us and and almost like admirable admirably to be the richest person in the world and just let it all hang out there we we haven't seen this before right you didn't have like like warren buffett or rockefeller like out on twitter just I mean, just telling you about their daily life and all their thoughts um i i just find it all fascinating that that's well people have lost the ability in media especially to be fascinated i mean i feel like i should hate elon musk from a more pragmatic reason, I have more reason to do so than people who do, which is that he throttled Substack and he hurt my business for a month or so. And eventually I went through uh, – these are technicalities of why it was a pain in the ass to get the new URL and everything else. But he materially impacted my life in a way that lost me some money and some business and was annoying, but yet – I retain the ability to look at him as a smorgasbord and go, okay, he has this, he has that. Well, that's a little hypocritical right there. Uh, he should be more careful and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit less uh, reactive right there in my in my opinion. But I think for whatever reason, I've, I've often talked about the PRification of everything, how everybody seems to be a volunteer f soldier in some cause or campaign and you can't even admit to any sort of quality or attribute that your perceived enemy has and they're just all they're just there's all bad and they're all stupid and it's that's not i just don't think that's real life and fundamentally that's not interesting yeah i mean look and i'm not some uh elon apologist he he tried just tried to sue me for a while. He threatened to like, destroy mm -hmm. my, my family and all this, this uh, stuff. I mean, I think I'm thinking of this from a pretty rational sort of uh, dispassionate, possibly point of view. But but yeah, I mean, like, what do people want? I mean, you know, I covered Bill Gates for years. You know, he's the most boring, he's, like interview yeah. imaginable. <laughs> he just tells you exactly you 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 know you might as well be interviewing like Chat GPT Bill Gates because um, it's going to be the same thing yes like elon says like stuff that i just don't agree with i am not a conspiracy theorist on most things and and there's baffling like why would you just actively be attacking your customer base i don't know but like it's still it's like this is what this guy's chosen to do i don't really think it makes him evil or anything like that and and like what do you want you want everyone just to uh 
not tell you what they think and and just uh, tell you exactly what you expected anyway. Um, and, and again, I just think it's so funny that people have to feel like they, I had friends, like friends from school texting me today and they're like, why are you still supporting Elon? You know, I was like, first of all, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't even is like, he, is he running for something? Yeah. I was like, I don't, I don't even like, if I tweet about anything, it's like SpaceX and it's, it's like a remarkable company. I mean, that's it. You know, and I'm trying to sell some, some books, but I'm not like, uh, I'm not like on the Elon campaign, like you're saying. Yeah. And I, I just thought, why are you, why do you even care? How is this guy got this, you don't even know him. He has nothing to do with your life. And, and, uh, you know, I just, it's amazing to me that people have all these like, very strong held opinions on things. I mean, there, there are reasons not to like him, but let's face it. There are a lot, the, the NPC meme is real. There are a lot of people who just hate things because they feel like the social expectation is that they hate things. And we just see that we see that. I think it can happen almost more efficiently given social media uh, of which now Elon has a hand in. And again, you lose the ability to be interested in things. You're somebody who is interested in things. I can clearly see that you're depicting, you're depicting a moment in time where he succeeded in which innovation slowed, which is fascinating and deserves a lot of study. Uh, there, there's a lot that's been written about this phenomenon, much of it over my head, but what is the Peter Thiel quote about how we expected flying cars we and got we got a- 100, 140 characters yeah. like that, yeah. that, that dynamic. And I think from what I could see, one of the things that drew you to the Musk story was that when much of the inner innovation, what we call tech, it was this abstract technology, it, it scales quickly, so that's cool if you're trying to make money and you don't have to worry about unwinding it in an expensive process, and that's also cool, but it doesn't inspire awe. There's no grandeur to it. And when you got on the case of Musk and you're 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 just looking at giant contraptions, there is an awe that even though it's modernity and it's the frontier, it's the vanguard, it also harkens back to the big business of a hundred years ago or the Chicago world's fair, you know, the, the, these things that we've lost where we're looking at the future and the future is impressive. It seems like we lost that. And he represents that to a certain degree. That you nailed a hundred percent. What sucked me in to do in the book was, you know, <laughs> everything else was, was essentially an advertising company or a company that showed you movies you know these were all our tech moguls facebook google netflix and and that first time i interviewed elon i was not a space junkie or anything at all and so i'd seen spacex you know in the press a little bit and um their factory is is in the heart of los angeles it's not like in the hinterlands or anything like that it's right by lax I walked into the factory and I totally expected to see, I don't know, like 150 people around one rocket, you know, just kind of gluing things to it to get it ready for the next launch. And this, there was this massive factory with like all these people working so freaking hard on an actual, many physical objects. It was right in the middle of Los Angeles. I was like, how come? 
how come we're told we can't make stuff in the U.S. and we for sure can't make stuff in California? But this guy has like yeah. a car factory and a rocket factory, and and I was just like, why? How come? You know how? Why? Why is this happening? And uh, and you could just feel. It's like I go all over the world. I'd been to like Facebook data centers in the Arctic Circle, which is cool. You're in the Arctic Circle, seeing a data center, but you know, is there's like six people in there, and there's just lights yeah. flashing to actually see people like welding and all this stuff. I was like, man, this is this is real. Um, I'm into this. Yeah, yeah, it's tangible. It's something that would awe my five year old if he saw it versus what the other moguls are doing now my five-year-old incidentally hates elon musk um <laughs> seriously because all he does is over overhear conversations and eavesdrop and he he's heard me talk about this businessman who's oh, blocked right. access to daddy's articles <laughs> and that's all he knows but i'm sure i could convert him quite quickly if you were to see a rocket launch for instance and i can't really do that with whatever bill gates is up to and he's drinking water that used to be sewage or whatever. You know? I mean, that that's was something that, I remember. That's like it's the impressive. exciting part of Bill Gates, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, <it's> my <laughs> son would be into that. My son would be into the guy who turned poop water into drinking water? I think that that's actually something that would be in his wheelhouse. So maybe that's not the best example. Bill, Bill just paid for that though. That was somebody else who made that. It's so <laughs> funny, man. I I did. I tweeted a a, a link to one of your your stories and God. Yeah. I saw what you were talking about. I mean, that thing was just throttled down to, uh, it was just sent into the abyss somewhere where people just could not, uh, could not find it. Oh yeah. Well, I, maybe I, I had it coming because I was cocky at first when the throttling happened, as I said, it didn't impact my business and it, it, it didn't, but, um, at the first, but what it does is it puts a cap on virality and it sort of gave me at least a little bit of a lesson into how you might you might want to exist outside of Twitter as a creator and I don't really tweet, but it is a valuable content port. And if somebody is stepping on it and making it effectively impossible for one of your stories to go viral on there, I mean, that is – Maybe this bores the listener, and I apologize if it does. But no, it becomes a very uphill battle if you are base. If it's basically illegal for you to go viral on Twitter, it's it's hard to go viral. Yeah, I I just spent the last. So I don't want to bore the listener either. You know, as you go to launch a book, like it. They get. I found they get most intrigued when we say that. When we preface (laughs) it, because they're they're especially my subscribers are oppositional thinkers so they're gonna like well fuck you i'm interested that's what they're thinking right now <laughs> i mean i've been trying to game everything possible when you go to launch a book it's the most helpless feeling in the world you you just spent five years of your life on this thing and you just feel like it's completely up to luck and and chance and some weird mm-hmm. moment in timing or, you know is it going to find the world or not and so you're sitting there trying to trying to shill yourself relentlessly online and see what sticks. It's, it's amazing to me. The publishing industry is so pathetic. And, and uh, uh, I tried for, for months. I mean, I was, my last book was pretty successful. So I had a little money. I was like trying to hire someone who could, um, who was like the master at this, you know, at, at, at launching a, a book. I, I discovered, I don't think that person like actually exists. I couldn't find anyone who really knew what they were doing and, yeah. and had any better ideas than I did myself um but you know i felt that sort of helplessness that you're kind of talking about you're just like please world and i need this to work (laughs) oh i would i'll give you a recommendation um don't 
release your book um, on April, you know, April 2020. I, I would recommend that. <laughs> like, don't do that. You know, if I could have that one over, I think I might have taken a mulligan on that one. Maybe don't you don't want to release your book when literally every bookstore in America is closed due to uh, fear of a plague. And That's talking, just, you know, talking about anything, but uh, I don't want to embarrass you or anything. This is you know, we, we're just meeting for the first time. So this is not uh, it's not like you paid. It's not a paid endorsement. Uh, your book was just ah. so, so good. I read it during the pandemic. Oh. And so you got one sale for during the pandemic oh. over here. Uh, and it's so funny, man. There was, you know, you talk about the the money behind the shoe deals, which I almost feel dumb now. It should have been so obvious. I hadn't, I, maybe I'm just an idiot. I had never thought of like, it's not like I went into professional athletes, starry eyed and not cynical. I had just never really done the math to calculate and just fully be like, Oh, you really are like family Nike far before you are sort of like family Golden State Warriors or whatever. And and I mean, I think I probably knew that on some level, but just the way you broke it down in, in, in the book, I was like, oh, man, I'm thinking about things pretty different. And then not to embarrass you again, but then I was like texting Sam Hinky, who I know from tech stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, Ethan's the best. He's the best. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Silicon, Silicon Sam. Sam of uh, Stanford Business School fame nowadays. Um, yeah, I think that depends on your status. If you are the highest tier of player, then it becomes that. If you are lower than that, then it is pretty much your team. But these guys are competitive, and at a certain point, that's the greatest – victory there is LeBron right now among active players is the face of Nike. And if you were to displace him in being that, then that would be a massive coup. And for Kevin Durant, not being able to get there, I think was a source of some disappointment and some tension. And then, well, I mean, this is a big theme of mine when I wrote about the NBA is that a lot of the times a lot of the main characters were edited out of the story, or sometimes the authors were edited out of the story where we're not going to talk about the agents because we need to break the story. And so we need to do what they want. They don't want to be mentioned, although these days they do, which is kind of funny. And we're not going to talk about <laughs> the sneaker companies. And we're just going to pretend that Charlie Munger's law of show me the incentive and I'll show you the result. We're just going to pretend that doesn't exist and they have no influence on the process. And the interesting thing about that is that it's got to be influential, but it's also more opaque. I mean, there are instances where Nike will have uh, incentives for a player hitting certain benchmarks statistically in the rookie season. And there's been the occasional situation where the rookie maybe could have come back halfway into the season, but they don't. They don't. And it's because there's, they're not going to make the all-rookie team. And they're not going to get rookie of the year and yeah. they've got a shot next year. But unlike with the NBA, where it's got this quirk that we treat as normal, where all the salaries are public, that's not true of whatever deal they sign with the sneaker company. We don't see it. It's utter opacity. And so we don't even know. You know, We know that there's an influence. And if you could crack it and you could do that reporting, then God bless you. But there's not much incentive to help you. But it certainly does it certainly does have an impact on what's going on, just like, hey, we don't completely know why Kevin Durant made the decision he made 
to go from Oklahoma City to the Golden State Warriors, but we know that Nike certainly wanted him to go to the Golden State Warriors, and we know that Nike is going to pay him over his lifetime more than the Oklahoma City Thunder do or did. So what do you think? Yeah. (laughs) How do you think that works? (laughs) I loved how you broke down these mechanics I just hadn't thought about before. I was was pretty shocked to see, you know, when you and Durant were going at it. uh, I worked for a British publication for five years, which is like an amazing experience because, you know, their press is very cynical. it's, It's quite... Um, tabloidy, although in a sort of slightly different sense of tabloid than I think we have in the United States. And, um, and, you know, the reporters, they really stick together, man. And like, like when there's like a, when they smell blood in the water during a a press conference, everybody kind of collectively nods and like gangs up together and supports each other and doesn't let go. And the American press is so different. We kind of like turn on our own so quick when somebody's got, Uh. Somebody on the ropes, somebody else changes the line of questioning, you know, and um, it cracks me up, man. When you work for a British publication, you can you're allowed to accept things like flights and hotel rooms and things like that. If you go to a a tech conference, whereas like American journalists are not, especially at the big Mm. publications, you're not allowed your company, the Times or Bloomberg supposed to pay for your flight and stuff. And I used to crack up all the time because I'd go to like this Intel conference and they would fly all these journalists from Europe. And then the Americans would show up who paid their own way. And then the European journalists would just tear the living shit out of the company (laughs) and the American journalists would take it so easy on him, man. I was like, whatever, like ethics are supposed to be achieved through this process. (laughs) I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's working quite like you guys planned. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's funny because I don't. I don't have that perspective on it. You know what I mean? I because this is all I'm used to, and I don't have that perspective that you have of oh, well, it's different in England, and we would all be just interrogating Kevin Durant in that press conference where he's getting mad at me for saying he's going to leave. To me, it's just self evidently it was totally absurd. It's like. Well, if you're not going to leave, then this is no big deal. <laughs> it would have it would have been over for him, man. That entire room would have turned on him, and like he would have been in a nightmare. I've seen it happen to these American execs; they have no idea what's about to happen to them. It's actually amazing to watch. <laughs> the disagreeable Brit personality. Uh, everybody's just a little Piers Morgan uh, waiting to get in. I, I look; it, it would make things a little more difficult to manage for the league perhaps. But I think the concept, there's a concept of partnership. And I think there's also this idea in sports journalism that it's not really that serious. So you can almost uh, breach ethically in certain directions, not to the point of making things up or or making things up that are sordid or scandalous, but being cozy with the people you're reporting on. Um, the Warriors would do this dinner, I think once or twice a year when you were traveling media where the PR guy on the dime of the owner would would take you out to dinner and you would you would all hang out. And I mean, I I guess that's not the most ethical thing, but I did it. And that that was part of the um that was part of the coziness. And there's also a little bit of um I wouldn't say Stockholm syndrome, but you're all traveling on the same journey at that point and you're on the road and you're living an existence that nobody else is living. So I think there, there is a little bit of capture 
that can just happen without anybody designing it that way. And it leads to a coziness. But let's face it, a lot of the reason why other media people would turn on me in that scenario is because they think they're going to get some credit from the famous right. person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gonna what... go like, it's like, this guy doesn't get it, but I get it. And you know what? You're cool. And now we're friends. This is the happens. difference, though. This is the difference between, you know, like it's sort of the difference between Europe and the United States in a lot of ways. The they kind of choose the collective good, right? It's like, yes, yeah. maybe I'm I'm costing myself like a little moment of glory, but this is the collegial thing we should mm-hmm. all do for the betterment of the press. Whereas in the US, it's like, here's my chance to like create a wedge <laughs> that I can exploit to, for to my differentiate. <laughs> you know, to differentiate. Yeah. Wow, I, I, that's I'm, so uh, interesting. I'm like a huge tennis tennis buff, and I, I played a lot as a kid. So every now and then, you know, I dip in, I like sneak my way in to cover some tennis story. Um, and the first couple times I went to like a tennis press conference after even doing like tech stuff, I was just like, oh my god, you guys are so fucking nice to these athletes, man. Oh my this god, is, they're the this worst. is crazy. They, no, they, they're the worst, especially where they. They treat some of the players like they're these timid deer who might run away. Like, okay, just when you ask the question of Naomi Osaka, make sure you're not phrasing it in a way that she's going to regard as aggressive. She's been through a lot. And it just, of course, the perverse incentives uh, of the whole thing, it almost just inspires more fragility because there's no expectation that you just withstand a difficult question. And yes, them especially. Especially for whatever reason, I could venture some theories, um, do turn on media members for asking what is deemed too aggressive a question of these uh, of these Zoomer tennis stars. It was unbelievable. I'm like, what are you, what is, what is even the point of this exercise? We all just watch. If you're just going to ask them, like, how was your forehand? I mean, we all just watch the the match, you know, let's, let's get into it, man. And, and, uh, a couple of the people like Andy Roddick or Andy Murray, they're actually really great. They seem to like enjoy a little uh, hand-to-hand combat, but uh, all the rest of them were just even, you know, oh. the players were just as bad as the reporters. They were not prepared for anything. Yeah. A lot of athletes, they're competitive and there's an aspect of, because we quote Jurassic Park in every podcast, uh, T-Rex likes to hunt, that they want to be challenged and they think that they can rise to the challenge. Yeah. Uh, but it sometimes goes the other way where it's this, oh my God, if I could only just get rid of this pesky media, I, I would be, I would be free and happy. But that the subject, this is something that I'm definitely tracking. I wonder about this generational cohort that is grown up knowing nothing but social media. And in some instances, and it could be anecdotal, seems pretty miserable. And maybe even rejecting of the success that, that that's offered. And so I'm waiting to see how that all falls out. You know, is this just a blip that you've got some people kind of publicly melting down in this way? Uh, was it always thus, or is this going to be the result of social media saturation? And this is just something like, just get ready for every other star of this caliber to be like Naomi Osaka and to just not even seem to like what they're doing. When she took that stance, I'm like, oh God, it's all over, man. Like, like, because the majority feeling was like, oh, we should protect her. Of course, she shouldn't have to uh, answer questions i mean she's going through something right now and and as if this was i just i was shocked and that was i think there were probably only like one or two people who were on the other 
side of that, at least in the the tennis press. And then the whole world weighed in and they mostly took her side. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is just going to be the precedent now. Like any any athlete who's like having an emotional moment in life is just going to get to check out of everything, you know? Yeah, it's fa- I, the social dynamics of it are interesting. This kind of idea that the worst thing you can do is to not be sensitive uh, through somebody if, towards somebody's going through a moment. You saw a little bit of that with Andrew Wiggins of the Warriors just disappearing for two months, and I think it's I find it to be completely nuts. I it just people have expectations. You've got your job. You've got your responsibilities. You have to show up at this time. You have to show up at that time. And I think there's just this kind of almost childish inclination in the culture to will those things away and expect that we're going to be happier for not having those responsibilities. And it gets to absurd levels. I mean, I might write about it, but the John Morant situation where he he apparently can't stop flashing guns on social media <laughs> And then you'll see J.J. Redick on ESPN saying, like, giving a huffy speech about, well, you know, what about how Abbott in Texas is, you know, passing gun laws? And da, 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 da. Like, what are you talking about, dude? He just needs <laughs> to stop flashing guns on social media and he could keep his $200 million or whatever. I mean, it's not – this is not an unreasonable expectation of an individual. That that one is the best. It's like, first of all, just don't go on Instagram live. This is not this is not hard. That that's your that's your first like strange compulsion you have. But if you do go on Instagram live, like don't have a gun. This is, yeah. There's 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 a there's a quite there's a couple easy steps to this. You know. I, I mean, like whatever's happening in Texas is whatever's <laughs> happening in Texas. It doesn't necessarily need to. Be, I mean, I to a certain extent, I mean, I'll probably write about this, but hey, there, there, it's a, that that situation is its own situation where what's happening isn't just that he's showing off a gun. There are players who have been photographed with guns. There's a guy named Keldon Johnson on the Spurs who goes hunting. It, it's that he's doing violent things. He's intimating violence. He is tweeting at a fan that hollow points are free. You know, the whole thing, I think, is a situation. This is a whole other topic where I think a lot of these athletes aren't helped by that. They're not helped by the the indulgence. And there's I'm sensitive to the idea that the scale of criticism actually can be psychologically devastating. I, I don't think a lot of them are built for it. I think that no human being has had to go through what they're going through to get so much feedback from so many um, from so many mediums. But trying to go the other way and tell people that they're right when they're wrong or that there shouldn't be expectations of them is also destructive. <laughs> it's well, it's, not it, good. It sucks, man. And then Naomi Osaka drove me crazy because she's, you know, she's like, I'm just so, this is all too much for me. She was shooting a Netflix documentary about her I life. I know. That's the other, that's like the you, other. You th- also don't have to choose to do that. <laughs> oh my God. That's the other thing about it is that if they just want, hey, it's a very simple solution. Number one, if you don't want to deal with the whole thing, you don't have to deal with the whole thing. You can just stop showing up. But number two, you'll, you'll see this thing where they're assailing people for giving them attention while working very hard to get the attention. And it's so clearly, I want all of the upside, but none of the downside. And I'm throwing a fit over it. But 
you know, I, again, I'm a little sympathetic to would this person 15 years ago just be kind of normal in their experience of this whole thing? Yeah. I, I remember watching the uh, – I would recommend to anybody the Netflix documentary on Taylor Swift because I felt as though I was watching – Social media eat the brain of a famous person in real time. <laughs> and it, <laughs> Where? it sucks, man. You know, I do. I do my stories, and I have a I have a TV show called Hello World. It's like a tech travel show, and that goes on YouTube. And man, if you think Twitter comments are bad, wait till you like oh YouTube on, on YouTube, man. And it's just it's just. Uh, I mean, you really you have to make a. A conscious choice. Somebody did compliment my feet once, though, and I, I oh. that's always stayed with me. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the the rest of it's pretty bad. It's like they they're analyzing your walk. You know, like I everyone says I walk like an NPC. <laughs> it totally gets in your head, man. While you're out, you now you're filming. You're just like, God, am I walking like an NPC again? This is so terrible. <laughs> Walking like an NPC. Is it just a zombie like? What, what you know, is that? So I'm not. I'm not like TV is not my natural habitat, and so uh, yeah, you know, it's so funny. Somebody turns this camera on. We do these stupid things. I mean, most of the show is great, but like sometimes you're just. This is Ashley walking in a street in, <laughs> in Sweden beautifully, you know, and, and you've got a camera on you. So you're just you're just kind of like not yourself. And I guess this comes through <laughs> on camera. <laughs> I would do that. I'm not very comfortable in my own skin. I'm fascinated by the idea of the NPC meme. There's there's actually a media member in I probably shouldn't even be saying this, but there's an NBA media member where other media members will talk about the Facebook posts as the apotheosis of the NPC <laughs> meme, where it's the type of thing where you wouldn't even it, – it's just beyond parody where you know Bud Light uh, has this issue with uh, – is it Dylan Mulvaney um, and uh, their Red Stady customers – want to boycott them and don't like it. So this individual will post about, I am buying all the Anheuser-Busch beer that I can buy. <laughs> it's just <laughs> – like a type of person where, again, I think that we're living in an era where quote-unquote normal people are acting completely bizarre and it's just a matter of when the technology – you know when the technology happened, and uh, otherwise, that otherwise these people would not appear so freakish. At least that's my belief. I think that you know, there's definitely there's the there's sort of that negativity. There's also, I've seen this time and again now. Like your Twitter feed definitely radicalizes some people. Their own feed radicalizes them. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's people who don't have that much of a following and then for whatever reason something takes off and then then their entire personality just becomes feeding this like audience that suddenly is paying attention to them and then it becomes their life you know i saw it with like alex mm. berenson i mean it was controversial oh, for yeah. a number of reasons but i worked with him at the new york times he was just like a pretty dogged reporter with a large ego that was not unusual for the times or anything like that you know like before covid he had like 6000 followers on twitter he was kind of like a middling uh detective novel writer and um and then you know all of a sudden he kind of finds his vein and then and then like builds this whole personality to and i think a little bit of that is elon too you know i think he got mm. sort of radicalized by he used to not be on twitter that much and then and then he started getting on 
And then obviously you have to say things that kind of uh, hit nerves, right? To get that same rush or feel like you're, you're getting the response from, from your public and, uh, and it just starts to shape your personality. Well, it makes you feel like you have to get the last word in a situation where you can't get the last word. And then that's inherently escalatory with Berenson. I remember it wasn't his first thing. He wrote a book about how weed is worse for he did is yeah. worse for you and worse for kids that which to me might even be an intuitive thesis, but that is also a bit of a contrarian thesis nowadays. So, hey, I've never read the book, but I, I'm at least interested in that. And I kind of wonder if maybe it's difficult to see how wrong the assumptions are about so many things and kind of keep yourself, keep yeah. yourself tether. Well, he might even be right on that book. You know, I, I haven't yeah, read it. I, I either, suspect but, he is. I have not looked, I've not yeah. looked at the science. I'm not anti-weed, but it didn't, I, I don't believe there's the free lunch in nature. So, it, you know, it doesn't sound crazy to me. No, but then, you know, that book did not, I'm sure did not get the attention that he, he wanted. And so like when, when COVID ran around and he had this contrarian take in the early days. I think he was just like, Oh my God, finally <laughs> they're listening to me. You know, And, and uh, man, I've never seen anyone spin up a business <laughs> based off words. So, so quickly before. Yeah. And at the same time, this is another instance where I actually literally don't even know. I, I don't know much. I took the, the first vaccine. I don't know much about vaccines. I do think that people should be able to, have a Substack or have a place where they can communicate that message. And um, because I remember there were fears about that, not, you know, he can't be allowed to have a platform and all of that. And I thought, you know, let him have a platform. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what the deal is. There's such little trust in people. Uh, it seems these days yeah. to just kind of figure it out and maybe check a few different sources do their own research they are not they are not encouraged to do their own research and so yeah and i think that was a disturbing aspect of that particular time period was just the sense of are we really in a place of inquiry right now it didn't feel like we were in a place of inquiry well it was the same thing we were kind of talking about before is just this this hysterical on both sides and it you, you get to hysterical so quickly that there's no there was never that that interregnum when you could actually have some sort of uh dispassionate talk about what was Wait, going on you know has, does musk have vax takes i feel like yeah I mean, he I was, should know that well he yeah i mean like early on you know he was <laughs> I, I should aspire to be so controversial that that's like number 100th of my most controversial takes oh we'll man continue. he's he's had many takes i mean the first was sort of like right when covid hit he's like this will all be over by april this is stupid <laughs> keep the factories open and the hey, it just depends on the april <laughs> yeah <laughs> the californian Politicians were pissed that he was like keeping his factory open and making people go to work. And then, and then actually, you know, and then and when Berenson got going, Elon, I don't think he had ever heard of them before. And then he started sort of backing him. I think Elon did get vaxxed um, at least once. And, uh, and then he caught COVID and he's like, this is nothing. And, um, and so, yeah, he's, he's gone through different things. I think he's, he, he, for sure does not like Fauci. Um, he's in that camp. And and I think probably writ large thinks, um, yeah, sort of what we were just talking about, probably thinks, you know, people weren't, it's, it's, it, that this is where he is in the, the 
free free press sort of Elon mm-hmm. version. You know, he thinks people should have been able to talk about all this more. I think he was he was going to bankroll well, uh, Berenson's uh, lawsuit against Twitter for a while. I feel like I I, I live such an ironic existence that the man, the, the most vocal proponent of free speech is the man who's throttling <laughs> who's throttling my substack you know elon's, <laughs> elon's sort of truths and version of free speech but you know very uh depending on which which audience you're in <laughs> i just i just remember I, I mean i i remember seeing about bill maher thinking like i agree with everything you're saying now let people read what i'm saying <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean yeah no man it's um it is a it's an interesting, interesting reality over there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I will say he would have more credibility with his takes if every time he has one of them, he does, as you've described, the long pause. We've talked about pauses on this podcast, and I, I need to work more of them in. I'm almost tempted to do it now, but I won't because it'll be distracting. But the thing that he does where he's considering a question, I was listening to the – um interview with CNBC and he was being asked about his controversial takes and I don't know what he was even being asked about if it was about in, intra you know in interracial violence or Soros or Magneto or what but he did that thing where he just stops talking and I was making I was making lunch and <laughs> I just go okay he's doing the pause thing and I thought wait am I sure I mean, is my, is my internet down? <laughs> yeah, wait. You know, wait, wait, wait. No, no, it's definitely no. The internet, it's it, it had to free. And then I look, like, no, no, it's going. And then he, and then he gives a statement. And then you're like, oh, this is brilliant. <laughs> this just has to be genius. He just went away for two minutes. This has to be good. Yeah, I, I know exactly the moment you're talking about. I think the the general question was sort of like, you're alienating everyone. Are you willing to like lose money as a result of this? And he, he went into his Elon space. He used to do that to me a lot. And then, you know, your temptation is because it's sort of awkward and it just unusual is to like fill the void, which is the worst thing you could possibly do, especially like any reporter tip not even a reporter tip more even like a magazine feature writer tip is like never open your mouth in that situation you know always always let the person fill the fill whatever comes out of their mouth is usually pretty good in that spot and you're probably gonna give them some easy out of whatever (laughs) radical thing they were about to say yeah 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 i Made that same mistake when I was in Florida interviewing the Cavender twins. Oh man, I feel like you might be interested in <laughs> you might be interested in that whole business and that whole story. Um, I shouldn't give too much away. Uh, speaking of the free press, I might be working on an article for them on this front. But there were definitely a couple moments in the course of that interview where. I felt like the subject material I was asking about was uncomfortable enough to the point where I was uncomfortable and I might've jumped in to kind of modify or soften. And then when I looked back on it, I went, ah, oh, man, come on, you rookie. What are you, what are you doing? But it's hard. That, that's a tricky. Well, it's hard when you're interviewing twins. It's a little bit different in that scenario. <laughs> There's <laughs> just interviewing certain... people with the telepathy. Yeah. I mean, I interview a lot of people who are engineers. I mean, th- this is not like their natural habitat to kind of be doing interviews or sometimes, frankly, they're probably a little bit on the spectrum and stuff like that. And, and, um, 
I don't know. It's kind of something I, I feel like I don't know if I've like trained myself over the years or whatever. It's it's really hard. You all, all your body is like fighting to like just <laughs> fill this void yeah. with some some. It's not like you're gonna say anything all that insightful anyway. It's usually just some like filler uh, conversation oh. filler. But uh, but yeah. yeah, you got to hold back. You know, almost all the time, it's it's pretty good um, what comes out. I feel like I wish I could have taken you along on this whole trip because I feel like you would have had <laughs> thoughts. There was so much happening and just post 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 modernity of we've got a photographer there in their apartment and their agent is recording and photographing our photographer photographing them talking to me as they talk with the agent about putting it on snapchat simultaneous with discussing this new business model and i mean i can talk about some of this because i'm not going to use all of it but you're kind of on the frontier of what people might dismiss as inane and silly and and vacuous and i'm not saying that they would be wrong about it uh this isn't the building of rockets um, or the technology that's going to decide the war between Ukraine and Russia. But in a way, you're also on the frontier of media, and these twins are being hired by a media company um, that's also a sports gambling company. And the whole thought process is that such people are going to replace sports writers and people who can get attention on TikTok and short attention span social media are the new commodities and the whole point of it is all to upsell people into gambling. And then you start to put all of this together and you start to realize that, oh, we're headed somewhere. I don't love where it's going, even if some of the people doing it have to be very smart to pull it off. And that's, I mean, for as much as people are talking about ChatGPT replacing media people, um, there's also this other element of actual social media stars also replacing people in traditional media venues. I know I'm going digressive, but it's hard not to think about. It's happening. Yeah. Like in my tech world all the time. I mean, I mean, Elon's sort of an example, you know, he fired all his PR people. He kind of just talks to like what are essentially like electric car influencers or Tesla influencers. Now, you know, they get on the, the Tesla yeah. earnings call. I mean, it's kind of incredible. Amazing. And then, and you totally see, I see it all the time. You know, we've had, um, people don't know there's like, there's a few documentaries on Netflix where it's never really disclosed. Like there's one on, um, on when, when Google had that AI system that won the the go competition in South Korea. Um, mm. you know, there's a documentary on Netflix is it's pretty good. It's, it was like all paid for by Google and, and nobody sort of knows this, but, uh, you see this more and more is, is these, um, sort of like we were talking about the ghostwriters, but these, um, executives and these these kind of you know everyone's just kind of like oh i'll just do it myself or i'll just handpick the the person i really um who's who's gonna be super gentle and, and it, it's like a celebration right it's not like uh yeah. there's nothing journalistic about it at all um i always try to remind these people it's like well what what's your end goal is it uh do you want an autobiography like open that's gonna stand the test of time or do you just want a huge pat on the back that's gonna sort of just go in and out of of the world because when you do something like a book you know it can change how you're viewed for yeah. a very long time if it's done well and and it can be meaningful yeah it, it, there's posterity there um i'm recalling 
when I was working for ESPN, when the Warriors took off and Steph Curry became the superstar, and I was there All-Star Weekend in New York City, I think uh, 2015, and the NBA comes to me, and at this point, there's just this ravenous atmosphere around Steph Curry. Whoever can get a minute with him, I mean, that's the ultimate coup. And at All-Star Weekend, there's media from everywhere and from Italy and from Japan and from China and everybody wants to get a piece of Steph. And my boss is at ESPN. Can you get Steph? Can you get Steph? And it's just, well, yeah, I'm on, you know, in the road locker room in Indiana. Sure. But this is actually uh, the setting where it's uh, quite difficult. Um, and the NBA approaches me and they go, look, we can get you Steph for an interview. And, you know, we, we, we've got a plan. We've got an idea. Like, oh, well, that's that's great. That's really cool. That's so cool. Uh, let, let's do that. What a coup. And they go. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, you know, State Farm is an NBA sponsor <laughs> and they're doing this thing where perhaps you've seen it. Perhaps you've seen it. Um, Cliff Paul is the alter ego of Chris <laughs> Paul. And he wears glasses. And so they, you know, he's the insurance agent version of Chris Paul. And so they're doing that now with Steph Curry, where there's uh there's a Stefan Curry, and he's the you know, insurance agent alter ego. And so what we were thinking is that maybe you could interview Steph as Stefan Curry, and you could do it, you could do it that way. And you could <laughs> that that could be what you do. And I go, uh, let me, let me just talk to my, let me talk to my editor. I was like, oh my God. And I thank God my boss just said, you, you don't, you don't have to do that because there was legitimately a moment where it was, okay, I think this is something that I am supposed to do and I'm just going to have to suck it up and feel this kind of weird dread wash over me. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling it right now, all these (laughs) through zoom, all these years apart. (laughs) That sounds horrific. I I was so, so Stefan, you know, I don't even know what I would have said. Jesus. The, you know, I did a, I did a story when Balmer bought the Clippers. Um, I'd covered Microsoft in years past. So I kind of got access to Steve, you know, during this whole process and, uh, wow. and, and wrote a big cover story for business week, but I was shocked. You know, I, I, I'd never really dealt with NBA players before. And I was trying to interview doc and Chris Paul and, and, um, a couple other, like Deandre, I think was down there. Um, I think JJ Reddick was there too. Um, I was trying to get time with the players, you know, and this is like a 5,000 word, magazine feature bomber was like spending days with me and uh, and you, you, the pr guys like okay oh yeah we'll get you time we'll get you time and then i, I get there and they're like yeah okay here's your like five minutes with chris i was like five i was like what yeah. I'm, I'm writing yeah. i was like i'm writing a multi-thousand word like magazine story what are you talking about you know and he's like well he just doesn't have that much time i'm, I'm and then it was the same <laughs> so we're not we're not in control <laughs> yeah it was like the same with all these guys i was like hang on a minute because like the dude who's worth like $40 billion who owns the team is giving yes. me like two days yes. and I'm like at his house and I'm at his Stanford business class. And, and, but like this guy who's, who's frankly is like not even the most famous dude or like, you know, the most powerful person in this room. You're only, you're telling me this is some super precious commodity. And you know, like I've been, this is not some bragging thing. It's just my job. It's like, I hang out with these yeah. Billionaires all the time. Yeah, they, you you are you are not Elon Musk, Chris yeah, Paul. Right. I was yes. like, I was like, 
think I was literally with Elon like the week <laughs> before. I'm like, how come, how come like Elon will just sit with me for an hour, but you you can't do that? You know, is that so, normal? Is that just how it operates? Yes. Yes. And it's something that I got out before I really started to feel it because you'll see this from NBA media guys when they start to hit middle age and a real resentment starts to creep in that wasn't there before. Because when you're in your 20s and you're waiting on a guy in his 20s who's a big star, you kind of just accept it and go, okay, well, he's the big star and I've got to wait on him. And maybe I've got to pretend he's uh, Stephon Curry. I don't know. Whatever I got to do to make it happen (laughs) over here. But you get a little bit older. You have some kids and your patience for waiting on a 25-year-old who's being rude or not being considerate about your time and not even because they're a bad guy, but because they just don't have to, and they've got other stuff going on that patience lessens and a resentment can really start to, it can start to build up and it can certainly build up with the billionaire owners who buy these teams because the ironic success for them when they try to draft players and trade for players is that you're hoping for a guy with the leverage to treat you like dirt. That is that is success. That is success. If you don't have a guy in your roster who can just treat you like shit and not even care and do whatever he wants, then you, you failed. You know, you you have a very bad roster of guys who are actually worried that you might trade them. Like you're you're hoping for that. You're hoping when when Kevin Durant leaves, you're hoping for a guy, maybe not that difficult, but who presents similar difficulties to to fill to fill that particular void. And my God, that is a very hard thing for, let's say, uh, Joe Psy, uh, who's used to dealing with the CCP, is not used to dealing with uh, players. And the reason, yeah, they can't get you the time because they're they're not in charge. And for whatever reason, Balmer understands perhaps more of your influence or has more respect for it. And I mean, I've got a whole bunch of questions but about him. This- I love the way that guy walks. The way that guy walks is something that I can I can ruminate on. The way he just sticks his giant bald eagle nose in front of him, and he's just this just giant guy, and it's almost like he must bump into things all day because his face <laughs> leads his body by two feet. But anyway, <laughs> is this is this like a NBA or a professional athlete thing? Because I I haven't run across even if I'm talking to like actors, like I got Robert Downey Jr. on the phone for you know he's just hanging out for like 45 minutes was never never uh, pressuring me when I, I interviewed Nadal. We were sitting around for an hour, you know, it was very he's like making me a cup of a cup of espresso and stuff like that. Yeah. And is this like an NBA thing or a professional? Yeah. yeah. It is. It's it's um I was famous since I was 13 years old and even the guys who don't end up becoming superstars were the man back then and maybe had the expectation that they would become that later on and they just mean more. And then the salary cap makes it so that often their value is understated in salary which then gives them more power. The power has to go somewhere, the leverage has to go somewhere. And so, yeah, it's more of an NBA player thing. My friends in media, they tell me dealing with baseball players, dealing with football players is just it, it's just so much easier and you get more of a down to earth. And I, I dealt with probably the most down to earth, super famous team you could deal with in the Warriors right. um, and guys that were generally pretty good guys. But yeah, they just they 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 dictate the terms and they know they dictate the terms and 
you know, they only, I always say about them, they only become people after they retire because that's not how life is like generally. And they figure it out and they're finally off this journey where everything, I mean, the other thing with them too, is that the way the business operates, they want maximal focus on the task of playing the game. The people paying them want that. So everything is done for them to make their life completely frictionless where they're not even having to think about where a roll of socks are. So that's the other thing that's happening too, is that it's not just having yes men. It's not just making a lot of money. It's not just having leverage. It's that you're in this strange kind of bubble where everything is done for you to get you focused on being the product. And then that informs how you deal with everything else. This makes sense. <laughs> when, when I was growing up, I was a, I was a waiter at the this restaurant that was attached to the Houston Rockets training facility, and they had this policy like anyone involved with the Rockets got to eat for free, you know. So like this was this was like the glory days of the Rockets. This was like mid nineties. Rudy T. Rudy Tomjanovich used yeah. to sleep on the the couch all night. Sort of, I think, put a few drinks back from what I could tell on his face, and uh, oh, come yeah. in come in for lunch. You know, he was always getting. He's like, give me a Boca burger, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and he'd eat it. They get their food for free. He would always like tip me. You know, basically whatever the cost of the meal was. I had, like Popovich and Avery Johnson when Avery was a coach came through. Got like a burger. They tipped me like 50 bucks each. And then the players would come through. And I remember Shaq came in one time with like six friends. I think they quite literally ordered like everything on the the menu. Like you couldn't even fit anything else on this table anymore. They just left uh. <laughs> with nothing, man. I was I'm like, you know, I know the food's free, but I'm, I'm 17. There, <laughs> there is a status to it too. When it comes to the eating, when I was in the locker room, because they have catering after a game and there's such a status consciousness of players have to eat the catering first. And they would yell if somebody else, if, Somebody from the team who like some photographer started putting some penne pasta into a bowl. It'd be just, ah, players eat first, players eat first. <laughs> There's just this thing of the status of player that they really want to uphold as you get to do what you want because you're the big shit and you're the big man on campus. And whew, then one day it ends and it's rough for a lot of guys. Yeah. You have to figure out who they really are. Yeah, like all the ex-coaches, many of whom were players, they were just the nicest people ever, man. The best was when the, you know, like the eight coaches would come by for their like lunch meeting and I'd I'd get like, you know, whatever, a hundred fifty dollar tip from like uh, eight hamburgers. And, well, and there, this is um oh man, you would like this. You're you're nearby. We should maybe do this sometime. One of the most powerful people in the NBA is a guy by the name of Warren Legary. And he runs vast swaths of the NBA out of his Victorian in San Francisco. And he's just, he's a boomer with a mullet, voluble. He talks a little bit like Ari Gold from Entourage, and he's <laughs> an agent to a bunch of coaches and general managers. He he invented NBA Summer League as well in Las oh, Vegas wow. okay. and runs it. And I've talked with him about this, just why why coaches, and I think it's, Again, it's that he he reached a certain age, and it's just I want to represent men. I want to represent just just people with perspective, and maybe a little bit of a pot belly, and not deal with not deal with young men in the thrall of fame, 
doing some of the crazy stuff agents have to do to keep their clients, such as sometimes paying them under the table. But I've always found that to be very sensible, and that might be why he's had such you know longevity in addition to just being one of the most incredible characters you would ever meet. Have you written a story about him? I did a podcast on him. Okay. I uh, After I got fired by ESPN in 2017, I went to his Victorian and I watched him do his thing. And I was watching him yell at an NBA owner over a contract with uh, <laughs> for one of his coaches. And it was like – it was like watching an agent on TV or like watching Entourage where he's cursing and there's this high emotional volatility where you're going from the flash to anger to the charm. And with him, he <laughs> he, he says sweetie and stud when he addresses you. Um, he, he's an excellent he's an excellent schmoozer. He's a little bit like Balmer where there's the large head and the head kind of kind of leads the way. And um, he is just an incredible, just an incredible character. And one of these people, again, in the underworld of the NBA where, Hey, when Warren is representing your team's coach and your team's general manager, I mean, who's running your team (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to staffing and you might as a fan never have heard of him and you're following your team and you're kind of being presented with this reality of how it operates. That might not totally be the reality. He sounds like a book, man. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe, maybe. Hopefully he's not annoyed at the mention. I still want to go to Summer League and have a good time. And I quite enjoy (laughs) the colorful and charismatic Warren Legary. As I enjoyed this interview, sir, uh, plug the book again on the outro. Uh, It sounds fascinating, and I can't wait to read it. It is called When the Heavens Went on Sale. Um, And it's, anyway, you know, for anyone who wants just like a good, good, uh, pretty funny i think and it's kind of a romp around the world don't don't be if you're not into space don't be scared away (laughs) i like that i i like that as a tagline as an elevator pitch that this is going to be about more than i don't know what comprises the rocks on mars it's about about avarice and ambition and ego and posterity and all the good shit all the good shit that's what it's about that is true. It's just some very eccentric characters. You, sort of like you just always start with the character first, and there's some good ones in there. Okay, man. Well, thanks so much. We'll do it again after I, I actually do my homework, and we'll have another great conversation. Can I make one last plea before I go? Yes, of course. I would love to convince you to uh, do a story on, on the business of tennis one day, because I, I think it would be uniquely suited to your talents it's ah. such such a it's it is probably the most dysfunctional sport on earth and i i think your talents would do it justice it seems like a sport that would fly me out it would get me to fly out to a nice locale so that, i like that i'm into that yeah if you point me in the right direction again as we said earlier when you're doing one of these things i just don't want to look stupid talking about a world that i barely understand but i am definitely open to it all right my job here is done okay man thanks so much thank you